You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to Heart Sounds for June 2021. I have lost all track of time somehow, so it came as a shock to realize the days are now getting shorter again, at least in my hemisphere. The last few months we've been playing around with some different content on Heart Sounds, weaving in some one-on-one interviews. This month I'll go back to the classic format where I bring you up to speed on some of the top content on TCTMD.com over the past month. Let's get started. It was in late May that reports started trickling in that young adults, and especially young males, might be developing myocarditis as a side effect of the mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. There were some case reports out of Israel and then the U.S., followed by a series of papers in circulation, culminating in a meeting of the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices last week. Just as we saw with COVID-19 itself, any cardiovascular signals following vaccination have spurred weeks of furious activity, trying to determine whether the events reported are real, and if so, how big of an issue this might be. I myself sat through the ASIP meeting and listened to the evidence being summarized. For the first time, the CDC determined that yes, there is a likely association between mRNA vaccines and myocarditis, but they put that risk at about 12.6 cases per million second doses. Accumulating evidence makes it clear that the risk of developing myocarditis or pericarditis is higher in males, it's higher in younger subjects, and it is clustered after second doses, typically within the first four or five days. Importantly, four out of five of the confirmed cases to date in the U.S. have resolved within a few months, many of those not requiring hospitalization. I am neither very young nor male, but I myself managed to get my second dose of an mRNA vaccine here in Canada at a pop-up clinic on the evening of the day I'd spent listening to the ACE hearing. TCTMD's Michael Reardon has been covering a lot of the emerging studies and case reports on this topic. He spoke earlier this month with Jacob Udell of the University of Toronto, Canada, who summed up some of the unknowns in this fast-moving space. Some people of a small minority have these endotheliitis or reactions that can manifest itself as a myocarditis or pericarditis, a low-grade inflammation. We have such high sensitivity biomarkers now that if someone comes in with chest discomfort, and we now maybe even then we didn't, but now, of course, if I knew the patient just recently got vaccinated, of course I'm checking right. their cardiac troponins. They're going to potentially be you know, detectable. We don't really have a sense yet in, in the reports of, what is the degree of elevation of these of these markers? The ECG changes sound like they're classic for myopericarditis. You know, is that consistent across everyone? And then is there LV dysfunction? Like, I haven't even heard to what degree are we detecting either by echo or more sensitive MRI, any sort of actual, you know, objective myocardial dysfunction. Of course, we won't have baselines in many of these otherwise healthy individuals. Mm-hmm. So we're going with whatever we see. And, and then we don't have any kind of really good near or long, obviously no long term, but even near term follow up. Also late last month, completing a process started about 13 years ago, new rules for how medical devices are evaluated and brought to market in the European Union came into full force. They will have implications for everything from contact lenses to implantable cardiovascular devices. 
In broad strokes, as Todd Neal explained for TCTMD, the updated Medical Device Regulation, or MDR, aims to enhance the quality and safety of medical devices by tightening up how they're evaluated and certified ahead of market introduction. The European Commission first initiated discussions around changing regulations for medical devices in 2008. Proposals and negotiations among relevant stakeholders, including the European Society of Cardiology, led to a major agreement between the European Council and the European Parliament in 2016. New legislation was passed in 2017 with a three-year transition period for implementation. Like so many things, however, the pandemic delayed that by a year. Todd spoke with Alan Fraser of Cardiff University in Wales, who is the past chair of the Regulatory Affairs Committee of the European Society of Cardiology. Fraser walked him through some of the key changes. I think from a clinical perspective, the major things that are beneficial and progressive are the increased requirements for clinical evidence for high-risk devices before they receive market access the requirements for transparency of evidence that has been submitted when um, applications have been evaluated by notified bodies. And then thirdly, for the first time in Europe, the involvement of experts in reviewing the evidence and the evaluations um, and their opinions from the expert panels that have now been set up. They're really just starting work, so it's too early to comment on how that will operate. But their opinions will also be published um, and open access. So all of that I see as a major step forward um, because that was one of the major criticisms with the European system, which was that it was not transparent and that the clinical standards may have been um, lax, but certainly they were probably variable because we didn't know uh, how they were being applied by different notified bodies. So all of that is potentially beneficial. You know, you cannot be a journalist who writes about cardiology for two decades without lying awake nights wondering about your coronary calcium. Maybe one of these days we'll all get to go back to a big cardiology meeting in person and they'll be so sumptuous and over the top, I'll be able to get my CAC score on the exhibition floor. In the meantime, Yael Maxwell covered a study for TCTMD this month out of Denmark, suggesting that even minimal coronary calcium scores are not benign in younger patients with chest pain. Practice differs internationally, but in the United States, for example, younger patients don't tend to be sent for CAC scans as readily as their older counterparts. In the study Yael covered, which was published online in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, investigators led by Martin Mortensen of Aarhus University Hospital in Denmark evaluated 3,691 symptomatic patients aged 18 to 45 who were sent for CAC scans in Denmark where this practice is standard of care based on the European guidelines. While most patients had a CAC of zero, nearly 15% had scores ranging from 1 to 10 to over 100, and not surprisingly, subsequent events over the next four years tracked with the amount of calcium. Yael spoke with Mortensen, who had this to say about the findings. Now we know, uh, at least based on from our study and also a couple of recent studies, that these this, uh, low calcium scores now among those individuals are actually not benign, not a benign finding. It is uh, in these younger individuals associated with uh, high vein rates and high cardiovascular risk in, in, uh, during follow-up. So just, uh, I just want people to understand now that 
when you evaluate calcium and look for calcium uh, in young individuals, then you need to understand that you should use a completely different threshold than you do in the middle age individuals. And you will be able to use calcium score to identify those who are at a high uh, cardiovascular risk, uh, short-term risk. I think all of us at TCTMD have written at some point about transcatheter valve interventions moving into younger, lower-risk patients who are also good candidates for surgery. Time and again, people have reminded us that the clinical trials really were focused on people who were lower risk for surgery, but weren't necessarily young. Transcatheter aortic valve implantation, of course, is approved in the United States and many other parts of the world for low-risk patients with severe aortic stenosis, but with no age threshold. This month, a writing group led by Toby Rogers of MedStar Washington Hospital Center in Bethesda published a review in Jack Cardiovascular Interventions underlining just how much is still unknown about how youth can impact outcomes after TAVI, as well as future options. Caitlin Cox wrote the story for TCTMD, and she put the question to Rogers, why the need to get this review out there now? Have a listen. TAVO is now approved theoretically across the board for low, intermediate, high and extreme risk patients. And that raises the potential for, you know, every patient with aortic stenosis either being offered or coming and requesting TAVA. We felt it was important to sort of summarize all of the evidence just to be very mindful that we still don't have good data in younger patients. And that just because it's approved doesn't mean it's the right treatment for everyone. You know, we very much mean not to criticize the the FDA and approvals. um, Because I think it's right that they, you know, if you had a hard cutoff, then, you know, you will always find a younger patient who, for whatever reason, TAVR is exactly the right treatment for them. You know, a classic example is a patient who's had mantle radiation at a young age for Hodgkin's or something, and they're a very bad surgical candidate, you know, but they're very young. And so I think it, you know, it is appropriate to to have it available as a treatment, but I just think it's very important that we don't just sort of jump on the bandwagon of TAVR as the treatment for everyone, regardless of age. Many months ago now, I started hearing that COVID-19 and the staffing shuffles that's necessitated for hospitals has made it hard to retain cath lab nurses and techs, particularly since high-paying short-term traveler positions were prompting some staffers to quit their full-time jobs for the allure of the road. Money, of course, is only one of the drivers. Several people who spoke with me for that story mentioned feeling undervalued and underpaid. I thought the resulting story touched on all the angles. I was wrong. Not long after it ran, a cath lab nurse named Yolanda Carter reached out to me, having seen my story. What I'd failed to mention, she said, is that many nurses and techs who are black or another visible minority become travelers because they aren't getting hired into permanent positions. Laura McEwen delved into this for TCTMD, and it took months for her feature story to come together. I think in part because some BIPOC healthcare workers, particularly if they are not physicians and rely on contract work, worry about reprisals if they speak out. On the other hand, white folks in permanent positions and power roles don't want to think that they might have an issue with diversity shortfalls and implicit bias in their hiring practices for their departments and labs. One of the people who did agree to be interviewed for Laura's story was Liz Perpetua, a nurse leader and founder of Empath Health in Seattle. 
One of the points she raised for Laura is that articles like this one, or seminars on equality and diversity, tend to get people talking and invigorated, but then there's a gap between that excitement and intention and any real change. Here's part of what Perpetua had to say to Laura. How do we support people, too, in between? You know, in between, like, here's this great, amazing article or, you know, webinar or Zoom meeting or whatever that is where we're so energized and we feel so empowered. But then we go back to our everyday existence where that support and what you felt was possible on that call or in that conference, then it like evaporated because we need a, a means, you know, or like we were talking about earlier, a home in which that kind of work and support can continue. Laura also spoke with Manesh Patel, a former cath lab director and now chief of cardiology at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. He pointed out that diversity in the workforce at all levels, from physician to nursing leadership to administration, also has important trade-offs for patient care overall. We often talk about diversity as a as an ideal, but really it affects the outcomes, the patients we care for. And there's, you have to believe that clear diversity and diverse workforce and people from different backgrounds and thinking, but also racial and ethnic groups that look and are parts of our population of patients we care, take care of lead to better outcomes. I think that's a good sampling of our top stories this month. There's a lot of other great content, of course. Our senior clinical editor, Mamas Mamas, sat down virtually with the principal investigators for the EBC Maine and DK Crush 5 trials to sort out the best approach for left main bifurcations, given the seemingly different results from these two studies. Our off-script blogger this month was Anchor Kalra, who recounts the story of learning that his own infant son required valve surgery and what that taught him as a doctor. Sign up for our twice-weekly email so you can keep abreast of all of the developments in this space, as well as breaking news and meeting coverage. We've also been keeping up our daily COVID-19 dispatch, every weekday that is, summing up the top research and policy pandemic developments. Thank you to the TCTMD reporters for all your hard work this month and every other month, and to Dan Goodman for producing this podcast month in, month out. Thanks for listening to Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.